With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome to this latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is November 12, 2013. We've got a great show for you today. As the announcer said, this is a live call-in show, so please call in when we have our page two expert today. I also see a number of people over in the chat room. You can join us there, and folks, you can type out your questions there if you prefer, or you can email me your questions today at tedhart at tedhart.com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. First up on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, uh, page one news today. You can follow along at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links, and you will not only find all the radio links for today's show, but all the very best links from all of our shows going back over the last couple of years. Uh, first up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, we have uh, coming to us from the PFA blog, Philanthropy for All. Uh, this is 35 email subject lines your nonprofit should be using. So as you're preparing for your year-end fundraising appeals, you want to take a look at uh, uh, this link that we provide to you today and download your copy of 35 email subject lines your nonprofit should be using and why. You'll find that over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Uh, next up, one of our uh, good friends are calling in today. Uh, from John Wiley and Sons with uh, an announcement for our next AFP Wiley radio show. 
coming up on November 26th. Welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Tiffany Charbonnier. Hi, Ted. Um, yes, I am very excited to be on your show today uh, to announce uh, Deborah Kaplan Pallavi, who will be on the show on November 26th. Her latest book comes out this month. Um, it's titled Donor Cultivation and the Donor Lifecycle Map, a New Framework for Fundraising. Deborah had started her professional career 30 years ago at Allied Jewish Community Services in Montreal, and she continues to consult, participating in several successful solicitations and training many fundraising professionals on how to succeed in their positions. She's fantastic, and you definitely have to mark your calendars. Well, we're so honored uh, to be continuing the AFP Wiley radio series. It's one of the most popular segments on the Nonprofit Coach, and Deborah kaplan Pullavy, uh is going to be a terrific addition to the series of podcasts that we have from Wiley. Uh, we want to thank you so much uh, for recruiting such uh, terrific authors and bringing them here to the Nonprofit Coach. Um, as you said, that uh, next show here on the Nonprofit Coast for AFP Wiley is on November 26th at 12 noon Eastern. Thank you, Tiffany, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ted. It's always a pleasure to have the folks uh, from Wiley joining us. We do have a link uh, over in the radio links today, Tiffany, to your website uh, so that people can go and not only find copies of uh, the uh, the book coming up for Deborah kaplan Pullavy, but also all of the wonderful authors um, over at Wiley. So thank you so much for bringing that to us and the wonderful authors that you bring to the Nonprofit Coach. And I do want to... Sorry about that. Hold on one second, Tiffany. I just uh, cut you off there. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tiffany. Oh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to highlight um, for for everyone listening, she does have a website um, with awesome tools for her book and a lifecycle map. Um, so it's definitely an add-on um, for for all those calling in and listening in. Well, terrific. Well, we'll make sure that we include that in the radio links uh, for the uh, uh, the uh, show that Deborah will be on for November 26th, um, in addition to the link that we have today directly over to the Wiley.com website. Great. Thank you again, Tiffany. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's going to be a really terrific show, so don't miss it. That is our next show here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, next week is a catch-up week where all of our listeners can catch up on the hundreds of podcasts here on The Nonprofit Coach, which you can find at tedhart.com. So the next live show of The Nonprofit Coach will be on November 26th, and that is the Deborah kaplan Pullaby show on the AFP Wiley radio show right here on the Nonprofit Coach. Next up here on page one news, um, over at uh, the Atlanta Journal of Constitution, uh, they're sharing with us today um, some background information around the importance of nonprofit organizations. Um, according to, uh, 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 to studies, of course, um, in the, uh, the United States, um, nonprofits spend 1.5 trillion, that's trillion with a T, each year and employ 13.5 million non, uh, employees in nonprofit organizations, making the segment the country's third leading workforce. So while nonprofit organizations are often seen as smaller, maybe not having resources, it is a very important part of the economic life cycle of the United States. Some good background information provided 
on the importance of nonprofit organizations and the importance for good leadership in those nonprofits over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Uh, next up here on uh, page one news uh, comes to us from the My Project Change. Uh, Project Change it talks about adventures in making the world a better place. And they're talking today about the power of giving and how volunteering can lead to a healthier, happier, and more fulfilled life. So uh, I think the, the general gist of this is, you know, we've seen studies of this sort, but this is really good uh, compact information on how volunteering really does make a difference uh, and to, uh, uh, to get the benefits of uh, volunteering to do that on a regular basis. Um, and certainly those of us who are in leadership positions in the nonprofit sector should understand the additional benefits not only to our organization, but that we are providing opportunities for people to improve their own lives by volunteering with nonprofit organizations. This is really quite a, a nice um, laid out um, article uh, that you really should take a look at and sort of digest when it comes to the overall benefits of people volunteering with your organization, which is not just uh, the uh, hours and the manpower that you may gain for your organization, but also the personal benefits for each of your volunteers. Social Media Today brings us over here in the Nonprofit Coach uh, radio links today, um, an infographic on Facebook five years ago. Who would have predicted that 140 million Facebook seems quite quaint today? Um, would grow to an inconceivable 1.15 billion uh, people, and that's billion with a B. Uh, Facebook outperformed MySpace in 2008 and has never stopped. Uh, Twitter and other fast-growing platforms, Twitter which just went uh, public in a very uh, successful IPO, um, are still in second place and, and still looking to um, uh, have their place in, in the marketplace. But this is quite an interesting uh, infographic and information that you have on Facebook. Of course, everybody's uh, always looking, uh, when will Facebook fail? Who will be the next big uh, Facebook? Uh, but the integration of Facebook into so many different aspects, um, and again, the uh, astronomical growth, uh, of, uh, of Facebook is really uh, bounding. So uh, making sure that you are making decisions about the use of Facebook by the numbers and not by the gut uh, is extremely important. And this will provide you some, some good background. Back in 2008, uh, the largest, uh, uh, most common demographic within Facebook was 18 to 24-year-olds. Uh, now the most common uh, demographic in 2013 are those age 25 to 34. Um, so uh, the demographics of Facebook are changing as well. Make sure that uh, you check this out over on the radio links today. That's at tedhart.com. This is uh, background information on Facebook. And let's keep in mind the nonprofit coaches' six pillars of success. And while Facebook is important, it is far from the most important thing that nonprofit organizations can do online to be successful today. Just to remind everyone, the number one thing that you can do to be successful online today is to have a well-designed website full of unique content and easy to use by your supporters. Number two in the United States is a strong GuideStar strategy, GuideStar.org. talked about that many times here on the Nonprofit Coach, so please check prior podcasts to get yourself up to date on how to successfully maneuver your organization 
with a guide star strategy. And the most important, we believe, here on the Nonprofit Coach for nonprofit organizations, which leads into our page two expert uh, today, is the issue of major donors and where we believe that uh, LinkedIn provides significant research pro possibilities uh, for nonprofit organization and therefore because of the high net worth individuals, corporations, and foundations who regularly use LinkedIn, we believe that LinkedIn has more promise for nonprofit fundraisers today than does Facebook. That's not to say that Facebook is not important. It does have a strong position in the marketplace, particularly if you are engaged in uh, special events. Uh, so make sure that you're being appropriate in the utilization of your time and resources in putting together your online strategy. Uh, with that, we're going to wrap up uh, Page 1 News today and get right on over to our Page 2 expert. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce to you today our Page 2 expert, John Greenhoe, CFRE. He's a senior fundraising practitioner at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who has trained thousands in the art of major gift identification and qualification and raised millions of dollars for both large and small nonprofit organizations. He's the author of the highly acclaimed book, Opening the Door to Major Gifts, Mastering the Discovery Call, and this is going to be a major topic of our discussion today. As all of you are looking to your fiscal year end and looking to uh, make sure that you are maximizing your giving. And then looking, uh, I think even more importantly for our discussions today, positioning your organization for a successful 2014. What are you doing to properly research and position your organization for success in major gifts? Uh, Mr. Greenhoe is a popular presenter. Uh, he has taught fundraising master's level courses at two universities and has delivered national philanthropy conference presentations in North America, Europe, Africa, and New Zealand. Mr. Greenhoe uh, began his fundraising career as a director of development of the greater Kalamazoo area Red Cross where he initiated comprehensive major gifts and plan giving programs. So his information, background, and expertise are deep rooted and the experience that Mr. Greenhow brings today. He's a master's degree in philanthropy and development from St. Mary's University and is an Association of Fundraising Professionals Master Trainer. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, John Greenhow. Thank you, Ted. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. John, you have a very important topic for us today for all nonprofit organizations, and I, I dare say there isn't a single nonprofit organization executive listening today that doesn't want to a desire to understand how to do a better job uh, in major gifts. So I think your topic today is very, very timely. Um, but before we get into that, I want to just give you an opportunity. If there's anything that I missed in the introduction of you in terms of your background or anything that you'd like to start off with, uh, about your book before we get into the details of your experience and the expertise that you bring to the show today. 
No, I think you've been very thorough. Um, I think it's important to recognize that um, when I write about major gift identification calls, I do try to speak to um, individuals working for smaller nonprofit organizations and larger ones as well. Obviously, I'm working in higher education now, and that's a larger organization. But I've worked with Red Cross. I've worked with smaller grassroots-type organizations. And you're right. um, (laughs) They all need expertise in major gifts. So uh, it was a pleasure to write the book and try to share a little bit anyway of some of the things I've learned over the years. Now, John, it seems uh, to me that uh, larger organizations have a bit of a head start because they understood the importance of some of the techniques that you're going to share with us today, um, that there is really nothing quick and simple about major gifts. It's about a deep-rooted sense of relationships and connecting your donors to the mission of your organization. So why don't we start there? What, what's the essence of the book that, uh, that you've written uh, and the importance of that in the sector? Well, um, probably the biggest thing that really occurs to me is that when I decided to write a book, um, the major gift discovery call was something that was actually uh, kind of a no-brainer. Um, and the reason was is because I've been doing this for a long uh, period of time, a couple of decades. And um, one of the things that I just recognized is that there's so much information out there on major gift solicitation which is an incredibly important topic, knowing how to ask for a gift. But what occurred to me is that there are so many individuals and so many organizations that are not even ready to solicit their donors face-to-face. Frankly, they don't even know them yet. Um, They may have very good direct mail and special events, uh, opportunities, and social media. But, you know, where it really is the face-to-face fundraising, because that's really the key to major gifts. And so thinking about that, um, you know, how do you start to cultivate individuals who you believe might be good major gift prospects, but you just don't know really how to start the conversation? And I think but you're right how, that large organizations start, are good at that. But yeah, um, that, I think also that um, you know, small organizations need to have that expertise, and uh, hopefully the book um, will help them with that. Well, I just wanted to jump in because uh, I, I want you to help us break this down because I once had an executive director tell me that uh, she thought she would be very good at major gift fundraising uh, because she understands that you take people to lunch and they give you checks. Um, why don't we break that down? Exactly. So it's all about taking people to lunch, or or is it? Well, exactly, um, and I think I think that's a really good illustration of you know some observations about the development profession. And you and I know that um, you know the understanding of how fundraisers work has actually improved over the years, but there still is a lot of that. And I do believe that you know I just give just give you an example. When I was in um, Johannesburg, South Africa, a few weeks ago, um, I had a number of individuals who are fundraisers, and actually one who was working for a university there. And uh, you know he basically said that his executive director expected him to walk into you know a lunch and the first time he'd met somebody and asked them for a major gift 
So you think about that. You know, what, what's the real, what's the realism? What's you know, what are the expectations, and, and you know, why are we thinking that way? I mean, I always say to people who you know approach me with a question like that, is, is to say to their, to their boss, to their executive director, their president. Okay, so let's just say that you, the executive director, are the donor prospect, and I'm the major gift officer. So how do you feel about me asking you for a large sum of money the first time I met you as a stranger? Basically, you don't know me. There's no relationship there. And so you, know, you have to put yourself in the donor's shoes. And as soon as you do that, I think your understanding will be much more clear. Yeah. So, so where is that where you start um, in training, and, and who exactly do you train? Do you train the development officer? Do you feel that the most important uh, person is the CEO or the executive director? Uh, how do you sort of triage that? Because uh, I'm often of the belief that uh, the executive director and CEO uh, is a very powerful part of the major gift team. They absolutely are, and I probably will say that you know perhaps I'm a little bit biased towards larger development organizations, but you know my philosophy is always that as the fundraiser, which I'm you know a major gift fundraiser, you know it's my job to really identify and qualify donors. And if you don't have someone doing that, then absolutely the executive director or the president needs to do that. But what you want to do as a fundraiser is you want to maximize the time of your executive director, your president, your CEO. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that you've got individuals in your quiver who you believe have an interest in eventually making a major investment. And you cue that up, you prepare them, you educate them, you you know bring them to your organization and talk to them about the work that you're doing, and then you do bring the, in the executive director and you do bring in the president. So, you know, my bias is that really a lot of that legwork can be done, you know, uh, by someone other than the top person in your organization, but it certainly could work that way, too. It's just the way that I've been trained and kind of what I'm used to. Right, and I think it's important for our listeners who, by and large, are uh, development officers and, and uh, chief executives of, of nonprofit organizations to really understand and put into context what is a development officer. And what I try to help people understand, I just want to ask you to sort of respond to this, is uh, that when you hire a development officer, the most important job that they have is to develop the opportunities for people to give and to organize the giving process that if the chief development officer or director of development, whatever the role might be, is asking for all of the money, you're never going to raise the amount of money that you need or you desire uh, because there's only a certain amount of time that that person can devote to that. So uh, hiring a magician that's going to create money um, is often, I think, where boards of directors and chief executives come from, but that's not necessarily who they've hired, is it? Exactly, um, and I do believe that you know there is a sophistication that needs to occur within nonprofit boards and with executive directors. And uh, one of my favorite quotes actually was taught to me by the founder of the St. Mary's University Philanthropy and Development Program. It's a it's a program that's been around for about 25 years, and it's in Winona, Minnesota. But Tim Burchill, the uh, individual who started the program, said to us on the first day of class, uh, fundraisers must lead while appearing to follow. 
So what does that mean? That means that the fundraiser is there to do the legwork. They're there to put the president, the CEO, in the right position to hopefully ask for a gift, hopefully a significant gift. And we know that many donors that we work with, um, you know, they don't want to be asked by the development officer. They want to be asked by the by the head person in the organization. And there are donors that I work with that, you know, it wouldn't make any sense for me to ask them for a gift. Our dean of our college needs to ask them for a gift, or our president needs to ask them for a gift because I don't have the title. I'm not the person you know who really is sort of solely you know assigned to uh, you know really leading the institution and talking about their mission. So yeah, development is really important because it does really prepare the process. It systematizes it, and it also you know one way to look at it for executive directors is that. I really say this with all sincerity. You know, my job is to make my dean, my president, my vice president look good. I mean, I'm the behind-the-scenes person. I'm helping that process to be organized and for the individual to be ready to make a gift. And then there's an opportunity to really, you know, talk about the very, you know, the essence of what we do in higher education or for grassroots organization, whatever it might be. But I do think there is that piece of it. It's a highly you know, refined educational process, and it's, it's important, but uh, we all just need to keep working on it, basically. And, and is, that, is that pretty universal, do you think, of, among nonprofit organizations and helping them understand where major gift fundraising fits within an overall fundraising program? Uh, because it, it does seem that there is sort of a general sense that maybe all fundraising is the same. Uh, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I do believe I do believe that some organizations really do need to have more education on really what fundraising takes, and um, I do believe that there's a lot of work that needs to be done very on the very much on the ground level with annual giving, with events, with engagement, um, and sometimes that gets undervalued. So you do have to have that annual giving program. You do have to have that feeder system for major gifts, but where that major gift officer is, you know, what they are doing is they are taking advantage of opportunities that are there that are presented by people who give you $100 or $500 or even $1,000 to the mail. I mean, when you're doing that, individuals are basically giving money to your organization, really using, you know, the least personalized form of communication or through the mail would be an example of that. So you think about that, and it stands to reason that these individuals might might be likely to give you much more money if you were to build a personal relationship with them. And so, again, that's all part of the process. And, uh, you know, I speak with boards of directors all the time about this and different executive directors. And, um, you know, you can tell when they kind of, the light kind of goes on, it's the aha moment. But I don't believe that everybody understands that immediately. So there's an educational process that always has to, has to occur. And within that education process, what are some of the common themes that get you to that aha moment? Because I imagine that we have a number of listeners uh, today that do not have boards of directors who quite understand the process. Yeah, I think that really what you need to do is you need to think about, um, you know, what you can do over the life cycle of your organization. And that, you know, it, it includes things like, you know, why do you do a prospect or acquisition mailing to your donors um, or to prospective donors when you know you're going to lose money on, on the process? You know that when you send out a, a letter to individuals who haven't given to your organization before, you're trying to bring in new people, that typically you're going to lose money on that. But it's all about the life cycle of the donor. 
donor. It's all about when you bring a donor to your organization, how are you going to treat them? And Major Gifts has a huge process in that because we know that we have to talk to the donor. We have to find out what they're interested in. We have to um, you know, cultivate them, bring them to our organization, invite them to meet um, you know, individuals who are involved in program staff or beneficiaries or whatever the situation is. And it's all a process. And there is no magic number as far as how many times you need to go see a you know, prospective donor before you ask them for a gift and that they make a gift. But I do think that it's understanding the life cycle of the donor, what it takes to really retain your donor. When there's such a big you know, uh, dialogue in philanthropy right now about donor retention and how terrible it is. But I do think that major donor work really helps you with your retention because if you have someone who gives your organization you know a hundred dollars and basically you just, you send them your basic you know form thank you letter and that's all they get back you know there's a lot of people that don't give again and the reason that they don't give again is because they believe or they sense that their gift is not important to the nonprofit organization so what's a better way to show that it's important than to go see them to go visit with them to talk with them ask them what's important to them and so again that's just another sort of, you know, a little sliver of how that all works, and you know that, but it's, it's an ongoing, <laughs> never-ending educational process, but it's a fun process, too. Right. So what, um, what is a major gift? Well, a major gift is anything that your organization believes is a significant gift to your organization. So it could be $1,000, it could be $100, it could be $10,000, but it really is something that you need to decide within your organization as to what is a significant you know, amount of money coming to your organization. So let's just say at Western Michigan University, to be a member of the President's Society is $2,500 a year, and there are also you know, lifetime giving amounts and things like that. But that is an amount that we've come up with over the years as to, you know, what's a percentage of your, you know, how many people to give to your organization and what's, you know, like a top percentage. You have to take a look at it from that perspective. But it's really about your organization, where you are in your process of building a major gift program. And that really will tell you, you know, what level do you want to, you know, honor someone, you know, annually for a gift? Is it a thousand dollars? You have to decide that, you know, how many people can you really you know, realistically take care of. That's a, that's a good piece, too. You know, if you don't have enough people out there working with donors, then it's hard to say that, you know, that you know half of our gifts coming to our organization are major gifts because, you know, you're never going to get to them. So you, I think you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, I, I, I do, and I want to make sure that, uh, that our listeners um, understand that as well. So it's specific to your book. Um, why did you choose discovery calls as the, the sort of the centerpiece of, of your book, Major Gifts? There are many aspects to it. What is specific about the discovery call that is significant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's personally significant to me because I've done a lot of them in the course of my career. I've started new development efforts in um, a small organization like the Red Cross and also working in colleges here at the university I work at. And I, you know, the, the number one reason that I wrote the book was because I saw no other book like it that existed. And I knew there was a need for the information. And I think, you know, based on how the book's done, which is great, um, that, um, you know, my theory has been affirmed. But, you know, there isn't any other book really that's been written on the topic. And, um, you know, there are dozens of books on solicitation. I mean, there's just tons of it there. But, again, it's a question of, how are you going to, you know, start that relationship? And um, 
frankly, you know, when I started as a major gift officer working at a university, I had difficulty getting in to see people. And so, um, you know, one of the things I did was I came up with different methods that I thought worked pretty well for me, and I've shared them with other individuals. And uh, basically, it's an opportunity just to share some of that information. But I also say that, you know, my way is one way. It's not the only way, but it, it's worked for me. So, um, but, you know, it, it's, you know, it's harder than the solicitation. Getting in to see someone for the first time is not always an easy thing. And so, you know, it's a short book. You know, you can pick it up and read it in a couple hours. And, you know, I think by the time that you're done, you're going to have some ideas about, you know, how you're going to start to see people that you want to build a relationship with. So I think that makes sense. Great. Well, uh, John, you've, uh, you've, as you said, have uh, been doing this for a number of years, and your, your expertise is quite well known. We're going to take a really quick break, and when we come back, I was wondering if you would share some of your personal experiences uh, in major gift fundraising and specifically some of the techniques of the discovery call that uh, would help our listeners today. And we'll be right back here on The Nonprofit Coach. Grab a pen. We just want to make sure that you've got your calendar up to date here on the live shows of the Nonprofit Coach. Next week, November 19, 2013, is a catch-up week. Uh, this is your opportunity to go to tedhart.com and to catch up on prior podcasts. We'll then be back live here on the Nonprofit Coach on November 26th. As we mentioned earlier during page one news, that is AFP Wiley Week here on the Nonprofit Coach, and Deborah Kaplan-Polovy is going to be here with the donor life cycle map. Uh, looking ahead, I do want to make sure that you've got the red letter day each year. Uh, we end our uh, calendar year and go into our, our holiday hiatus uh, with Kate Sprinkle Grace. And Kate Sprinkle Grace will be back for our holiday show on December 17th. Uh, she will be giving you tips and insights into making sure that 2014 uh, is as successful as it possibly can be for your nonprofit organization. Again, that's December 17th. That will be our last live show of 2013 before we go into our holiday hiatus. Uh, we're going to have a, a quick uh, information here on some additional resources uh, that you can find online, and then we're going to be back uh, live here on The Nonprofit Coach with John Greenhoe. Every day, millions of people are online, many of whom want to help, volunteer, and donate to a good cause. Nonprofit organizations can use many Google tools to reach potential donors around the world and raise more money. And as an approved nonprofit, it doesn't cost a thing. It's all free. Google Grants helps you promote your website with free advertising on Google.com through the AdWords program. With Google AdWords, you create ads and choose words or phrases related to your nonprofit organization. When people search on Google using one of your phrases, your ad will appear next to the Google search results under the Sponsored Links section. AdWords allows you to target certain geographic areas, dates, and times of day for your ads to appear. YouTube for Nonprofits is another tool that can boost donations to your organization. The program offers a number of perks that get your message out there and drive viewers to take action and donate. You can list your organization on YouTube's nonprofit channel and add call-to-action overlays on your videos to drive viewers to donate. Need help analyzing your website traffic and marketing effectiveness? 
Google Analytics is a free tool that will give you rich insight and help you increase the number of people that visit and donate to your site. Google Analytics can be invaluable to many people in your organization, such as development directors, marketing staff, and your web team. There are many other tools that can help you reach more donors and raise funds, like Google Checkout, where you can process credit card donations with no transaction fee, Google Sites to create a free website, and Website Optimizer, where you can figure out the best landing pages to turn site visitors into donors. To get started, apply for Google for Nonprofits today. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live on The Nonprofit Coach with John Greenhoe. Uh, so, John, can you walk us through some specific examples in terms of how the discovery call works and the significance of the major gift process? Sure. Um, you know, what I can do is just tell you, give you some ideas about um, some of the tips that I have kind of put together. Um, really what I think is important when you talk about discovery calls and major gifts is that it's very much a process. Um, and the, one of the things I'll say to people, and I say it in the book, is, you know, it's really hard work. Um, and if you're not used to working hard, then major gifts may not be the best, um, uh, you know, uh, area of work for you. And, you know, it goes back to your statement about, uh, you know, taking somebody to lunch and they give you money. Well, that's, that would be lovely if that actually existed. But um, I do think that, uh, you know, having rigor and having discipline is incredibly important. And so let me just tell you, um, and I can go into some, some of the things as far as some of the rationale, but let me just give you an example of you know, one type of a technique that I employ to make more discovery calls to get more people on my calendar. And um, it's really kind of a nerdy uh, sort of approach to uh, major gifts because it's, you know, it's, very, it's very analytical, it's very process-oriented, um, which is not always the, uh, the uh, MO of a development officer, but that's kind of the way that I operate. So basically what I did, here's just an idea, is I came up with this strategy, and it's called the ORS method. It's O-A-R-S. And um, basically what it is is it helps me to kind of discipline how I approach uh, my daily uh, focus on major gifts. So the O in OR stands for one hour each day. So let's just say that um, you, know, you are a major gift officer and a portion of your time is devoted to identifying and qualifying new prospective major gift donors. So my suggestion to that individual is to spend an hour of dedicated time each day simply picking up the phone and making uh, calls to individuals, trying to reach them, make appointments, and so forth, and to keep doing that. And so what happens is that you, know, you can reach a lot of people in an hour. And, um, but a lot of people don't do that um, when they're working in major gifts because it's hard. So you have to discipline yourself to do that. Another thing I recommend to development officers who are working in support of major gifts is to think about their prospects and to try to telephone them at least seven times before they kind of give up, move them off their list, or recycle them until a later time. And the reason I say seven times is that it's very much a sales method. Um, the American Marketing 
Association says it takes seven phone calls to reach the average C-level executive, CFO, CEO, etc. And so because I've worked with a lot of people over the years, and they will say to me, well, John, you know, I can't get people to call me back. And always my first question is, how many times did you call them? Oh, you know, two or three times. Well, um, that's kind of human nature. People are like, you know, if they haven't called you back after two or three times, then um, they're probably not interested. But not always true. People are just busy sometimes. They have major events going on in their life, and so you need to keep trying them. Not every day, obviously, but maybe you try them once a week. You keep trying back. I talked about recycling. If you can't get a hold of somebody, that's the R. And ores, um, recycling your prospects. If you can't get a hold of them, think about, um, you know, they may have had a major life event. They just got married. They had a death in their family, et cetera. So, you know, recycle them. Take them off your list for now, but, you know, come back to them in six months or so and try them again. And you never know. If they haven't directly told you they're not, not interested in meeting, then you really don't know. And then the final uh, uh, letter in the ores is they've got O for one hour a day, A for at least seven calls, R for recycling your prospects, and then S is to see your prospects or cross them off. Sounds kind of like a a very simple idea, but um, it's very much a numbers game. You've got to see people. You've got to go out and see people. If you can't see them, you'll cross them off. If you see them, you qualify them, you ask them some questions, and you figure out they're not a good major gift prospect, you cross them off your list again. So... um, that's sort of like a little crash course of one of the one of the methods that I use in my book, and there are lots of other ones, but that kind of gives you a taste of um, how I do some of what I do. Well, I think ORS is a terrific way for people to remind themselves that it is a process. And one of the things that, that I thought was particularly terrific about what you said is, um, you know, to make sure are you calling at least seven times um, before sort of moving on or putting them sort of in the recycle bin. Uh, and, and I always remind people that, you know, because I, I know major gift officers who, you know, almost sort of take it personally, like, well, I called a couple of times, they don't call me back, sort of, you know, they're, they're being rude or they're, they're not, you know, being very kind and, and, uh, and not calling back. And I always try to remind people that it's really not their job to call you back, it's your job to reach them. So the fact that they're really busy and that they've got a lot of things going on, you're not top of mind. And when they're triaging their day, deciding, you know, who can they uh, find time to call back or not, you're probably not going to fall to the top of that list. So calling back and making yourself available, making yourself present, um, becomes a little bit of a favor to them in understanding that someone who's likely to be a major gift donor, um, if First of all, is you're not the only one asking, um, and so not that you're being a pest uh, or overly persistent, but you're making yourself available. Absolutely, you, you are. You have to. It's your responsibility, um, you know. And there, there's even dialogue within the profession about what do you do as far as you know the responsibility of of you know having uh, someone call you back. And uh, there are people in sales that say, you know, um, you know, don't even you, know, you don't even need need to leave your number because you need to take control of the process. Well, I think that's just stupid, frankly. But because uh, I think that you need to let people opt into the process. But you can make sure that when you do call 
call them, you leave a message, you you know uh, have energy in your voice, you um, you know leave the number, and then you make sure that um, when you're doing this on a continuing basis that you're going to pick up the phone if they do call them back. I mean, the worst thing you can do is make all this outreach and they try to call you and they can't get through. So you've got to be you know like you know leave your cell phone number, do that you know, and then and then call them back. It's not their responsibility to call you back, but if they want to do it, let them have the opportunity to do that and let them be successful in reaching you. So I think you're absolutely right, Ted. I think that um, it is your responsibility. You have to let people in the process take ownership if they want to, but it's definitely your responsibility as the fundraiser to make the call and get the appointment and then to go and eventually ask for the gift. Right, right. And, to, and to, again, to make yourself available uh, to them, uh, and, and as you said, you know, the sort of the debate of if you leave the phone number or not, I, I, I'm in your camp. I think it's rude not to do that, but to also uh, make sure that you're keeping things very positive. Uh, you are having open-ended dialogue as opposed to, you know, sort of almost like call me or don't call me kind of thing. Um, <laughs> because, you know, anyone that you're going to ask, ultimately ask that kind of uh, major gift sum, these are not stupid people. They've been asked before, and, and in a lot of ways, and I think this is where your book becomes so valuable to my listeners, uh, is because you are being judged against all the others who have made asks in the past. You know, and some have done it really, really well, and they have been very respectful, and, and the, the donor has felt really good about that process, and others have really screwed it up. So where do you yeah, fall and I- in in that spectrum, are, are, are you doing it well, or are you just being uh, quick about it? Absolutely, I think I think that that's true, and you have to prove to your prospect that you're worthy of their time. You have to be, um, you know. Uh, one of the mantras that I use in my book, and I talk about it, is casual but purposeful. You need to make sure that you know, you're approaching your prospective donors in a relaxed way, but at the same time, they should never sense that you're somehow wasting their time. So there has to be a point to your contact. There has to be a strategy. There has to be an expectation that you're leaving in the donor's mind that there's a logical next step. That's the worst thing that can happen is the donor kind of like, you know, what's this person want? You know, and so you're, you're taking them along a journey. You're exploring their interests. You're hoping to help them to do something that they might already, you know, want to do, but they don't realize it. They don't have time to think about, you know, they're giving uh, opportunities in their philanthropy. So, you know, you're sort of like uh, – kind of like a you know philanthropy sherpa sort of you're guiding them along and it sounds kind of funny but um you know that's really how i think of myself is um i'm just there to assist them i'm not going to present anything that they really don't want to do i'm just going to give them some ideas that i think that they will really like and people are busy they don't have time to you know really examine their philanthropy as much as they want to because i think a lot of people when you do it well and people recognize that you know, they thank you for helping them make a gift which sounds you know almost crazy but it happens all the time. I'm sure you've experienced it too. Well, sure, and, and, and hopefully they are going to say thank you because it was such a pleasurable experience because if it wasn't, you can be uh, assured they won't do it again. It was, it was a painful process uh, to, to make a gift. But uh, I, I do think that in, uh, in this regard, um, you, you are a bit of a guide um, because I think most people who are in development come to the understanding that you're really not going to talk someone into doing something they don't want to do uh, because this is their volunteer money. They don't owe this money. They don't have to actually give it away to anyone. Uh, 
So you really have to take on that role of guide and advisor, uh, almost counselor, in helping them understand what is it that they would like to accomplish and why is your organization, this giving opportunity, an answer to what they're looking for. Exactly. And so a lot of that has to do with building a great rapport, and it also has to do with building a level of trust with your prospective donor. I talk about some other things in the book that um, sound really sort of um, nitpicky, but they're not. You know, I'll just give you an example of, you know, I go to see somebody, I call them, they're extremely busy, and, and you know, finally they say, you know, John, you know, I can give you, I can give you half an hour. And so I'm going to write that down. I'm going to say, absolutely, that's not a problem. So I go to see them, and I conduct my visit. And at 30 minutes, I look at my watch and say, thank you very much, Mr. Jones. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can get together again. And usually the answer on the other end is, oh, no, no, I've got more time. But you've got to show yourself as trustworthy. You've got to make sure that when people tell you something that you're going to honor it. And I say this in the book, and it sounds kind of funny, but on the first visit, you know, what's more important, you or your organization? Frankly, on the first visit, you're more important because it's a personal relationship. It's face-to-face. Eventually, it's the organization that's really the important thing on what you're trying to do and what they're trying to, you know, help change because of their gift. But if they don't trust you, if they don't like you, then you're not going to be successful. So you've got to build that rapport and you've got to be able to show your donors that, um, you know, that when you say something, you're going to follow through on it. And you mentioned this earlier. They've had experiences with other people who haven't followed through. Well, if you follow through, if you do what you say you're going to do, maybe even a little bit more than you say you're going to do, you will stand out. Exactly. We do have an email question from uh, Scott in Dallas, and he's asking if you can expand upon this concept of casual and purposeful that you mentioned Sure. Absolutely. Casual and purposeful is my mantra. And so when I call an individual for the first time, what I'm trying to do is tell them that, um, you know, that, that what I am doing is something that, you know, happens every day. It's something that's not unusual. I think, you know, people are like, you know, are you coming all the way downtown to see me? And, and, and you really need to assure people that, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's like I'm going to see people who are alumni. They're our supporters. I'm going to be in your area. I'm going to come and see you. And so it's a casual conversation. You are just talking to them about, um, you know, what's happening at the organization. You're investigating what's important to them. You're getting to know them. You're thinking about, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, what potential area they might want to support within your organization. And so, you know, people don't like to be rushed, and people don't typically make decisions of any magnitude when they feel rushed. So it's a casual conversation, and you always have to have that kind of an attitude when you're approaching your donors. Yes, you have a job to do, but you can have fun doing it, and you can approach them in a very casual way. As far as purposeful is concerned, I think that really is taking a look at um, you know, what you think would be um, helpful to the donor as they think about their philanthropic interests, are you taking them in directions that will help them to develop those interests, that will help them to sort of crystallize in their mind what it is that they might like to do for your organization if they want to do something? So 
there's a purpose to it. There's a next step. There's always something that's kind of on the horizon that you can, you know, you can take it to that next step if you want to do that. If you guys, you know, if, if you, if you, you know, kind of part ways, that's okay too. That's part of the journey. But um, the purposeful piece is that the donor always kind of senses that, you know, there is a logical next step. There is something that happens next. Then they don't have questions in their mind about what you're trying to do uh, when you're meeting with them. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think that does, and I, I think also expanding on the the purposeful part is is to have a bit of a plan. You know, not not to say that that, they're, that you're scripting every moment for the donor, but but what is your plan? What is the journey? Are they coming in for a visit? Are you going to visit with them? Is there a report that you're sending to them? And in in terms of how are you enhancing and building this relationship? showing and proving to the donor that you understand that this is partly about a relationship. This isn't just about their checkbook. This isn't just about how much uh, they're, they're going to give or not going to give. Because, again, I always try to remind people that, you know, the, by and large, uh, these people that, that have the, the, the wealth or the wherewithal to be able to even consider making the kind of gift that you're hoping that they'll make, these are not stupid people. So it's it's not about the sort of the act of ambush where you're sneaking up on them and and suddenly springing on them the the major gift they they get it they understand it and they're going to respect more uh, if you're bringing them along in that journey and giving them time to learn and and make up their own mind what they would like to do uh, than as as you said to just make too quick of an ask. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, just as sort of a really simple example, you know, the first time you meet with someone, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it. But sometimes when I, especially when I anticipate or kind of sense that the person's a little nervous, I might say something at the beginning like, you know, let's just have a casual conversation. Let's just talk a little bit about your interest and let me give you a little bit of information about what's happening at my organization. And, you know, maybe we could talk for half an hour or so. And can we kind of agree at the end of the half an hour that we'll just decide you know what, what what we're going to do next if there's a next step or if you know if, if you want me to bring you some additional information but can we kind of have that conversation don't worry about anything else let's just agree that we're going to decide what comes next at the end of our conversation and when I say that a lot of times people just kind of relax because they they're just not sure of the process they don't understand it necessarily always and so if I can do something to kind of you know relieve the tension a little bit then that's a good way to do it that's just one example well, and again, they they may or may not, but but most likely, uh, especially at the discovery call um, uh, aspect of this, they don't know you, right? So so it's about building that kind of rapport in in terms of who are you? Can I trust you? Is this someone that I want to explore or start this journey with, or is this someone who's just annoying or doesn't seem to know what they're doing? In which case, it's going to feel very much like a waste of my time. Absolutely. I think that uh, you definitely have to earn their trust, and uh, there's always the trust bond that needs to happen. It's, it's, it's just paramount when you're talking about major gifts. You have to have that rapport. You have to have that understanding. And, uh, you know, the donor always has to, has to believe, um, you know, and hopefully it's true that you have their best interests at heart. And so if they believe that, that's half the battle. Right, exactly. And, and when it comes to, to sort of deflection, uh, you know, one thing that, that you will often get, and my, my listeners certainly should take this into consideration, is, you know, at the discovery call um, time is you, you may have someone who will say, well, you know, you're just going to ask me for money, so let me save you the time. 
and you don't really need to come and visit me, you know, because I, you know, something of that on that order. And what I'll return, you know, on that is is to say, well, you know, certainly we hope that when the time is right, you might consider giving us a contribution, but I would never uh, consider even asking until you know us much better and you've had an opportunity uh, to learn more about what it is that we do and sort of change the, you know, the focus of uh, if you're just going to come and ask me for money, let me just kind of stop you right there, that, that this is more about you. This is the donor, more about getting to know you and what you would like to accomplish. And, and I'm sort of, I'm in for the time. I'm, I'm going to put that time in because I want you to feel successful. Yeah, I think that you need to do that, and you also need to, you know, be realistic with your donors. And you can and you can say to them during the discovery call, you know, certainly, you know, we're just getting to know each other, but uh, you know, I just kind of want to know a little bit about your philanthropic, you know, goals and your philosophy. I mean, I mean, just as, as an example, is our organization, you know, like one of your top three charities? I mean, just just get a little bit of an idea without putting any pressure on them. I mean, you're basically just finding out a little bit more about their interests, but you're not asking them for a gift. You are putting them, you know. You are giving them some time, but you're clarifying in your mind um, whether or not you know they do have interest, and so you're asking questions that will help you to clarify that without necessarily putting them right on the spot and asking them for a gift. Amy in uh, San Francisco just sent an email asking how all of this relates uh, to building your organization's pipeline. Oh, wow, what a great question. I love to talk. I actually do a couple of different sessions on pipelines, and um, it's it's a fantastic way to build your pipeline because when you think about you know major gifts and you think about discovery calls, it is all about getting new individuals into your pipeline, into your system. And so um, and people ask me all the time, you know, what's a good batting average for discovery calls, which really there is none. But you know, if, someone, if someone pinned me to the wall and said, Okay, well, give me some numbers. Okay, well, let's just throw some numbers out. Okay, so you've got 100 individuals who are on your list who haven't been properly qualified. You believe they might have an interest. And you, and you try to go see all of them and say, maybe you might get in to see half of them. Okay, so there's 50 people on your list now. So you go see those 50 people, and six months later, I can guarantee you that you're going to have probably no more than 25 people on your list. So when you talk about the pipeline, what's going to happen is, is that you've got to keep seeing the people. You've got to keep seeing new people. And so those 25 people are going to be in your pipeline, but they're not going to be there unless you go you know, try to, try to see the 100 people to start with. So you've got, to th- you've got to have a sales purpose and a sales orientation and part of your fundraising, and that is going out to see people, qualifying them, crossing them off and moving them forward, and that's all part of the pipeline. And you know some people are going to drop off your pipeline, so you've got to continue to feed those individuals in. And But there's a lot of activity at, at the beginning part that you've got to devote to that, and that will pay off for your pipeline. And they're going to have people you know, who are going to make major gifts, and there going to be some people who probably will come in lower than what you're thinking, and there's some people who really won't give you know, anywhere near the level you're talking about. But the pipeline, you know, the crucial thing is that you're continuing to see people, you're qualifying them, you're figuring out ones who have the potential for a major gift, and if you keep doing that, you're going to be successful. You just, it's the organizations that don't focus on getting people into the pipeline. Those are the ones who have trouble. You know, they, they don't have the major gifts because they don't have the people. They're not there. Right, and you've got to you've got to have a balance of prospects to renewals because you you can't become complacent and just assuming that everyone's going to renew or upgrade their giving. Um, you've got to have that prospect base. 
Absolutely. You have to spend time on your renewals. You have to spend time on stewardship. You have to do all those different types of things. And um, one of the things I just think is really important to remember about identification calls, and this is the reason it's so important, is that I think if you do identification calls correctly and do them well, you're going to shorten the cultivation time and also shorten the stewardship time. What happens when you don't identify someone well or correctly is you have questions in your mind about about the individuals as your organization and when you have questions about them the cultivation is going to take longer because you really haven't agreed with the process about with a prospect about what you're going to do so you're trying to find out early in the relationship you know what their potential um, you know what their potential wishes might be or what their potential um, uh, actions might be you're trying to clarify that you're asking clarifying questions during your discovery call and there are there are lists of questions in the book, um, but um, the question, the whole point is, is that if you do ID calls well, you will raise more money because you're going to have more clarity about the entire major gift process. Right, and, and so the the qualifying of of people in terms of their capacity to give, but also their interest in potentially giving really shortens that process as well. Well, John, I, I feel like we could spend hours and hours talking about this because you're such a, a well of information uh, and the expertise that you bring. Your wonderful book, which is part of the In the Trenches series, is available over on Amazon. It's called Opening the Door to Major Gifts, Mastering the Discovery Call. Uh, we're in our final minute here, uh, John, so uh, how can my listeners reach you? Well, I think probably the best way is to, uh, if you'd like more information on the book, and you can also reach me through that, is just to go to my website, which is just about.me forward slash John Greenhoe, J-O-H-N-G-R-E-E-N-H-O-E. And in addition to information on the book, there's my blog, and there's some other resource information that will help you to think about how to conduct um, identification calls for your organization. So lots of information on, on there about you know how I got started and some of the techniques that I use. And so I just uh, suggest if you want to check it out, about.me forward slash John Greenhoe. That's a great way to uh, get connected. Well, John Greenhoe, thank you so much for being my guest today here on The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you, Ted. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.